0: Welcome to Tester's Island Discs, your most musical guide to the world of software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Welcome to another episode of Tester's Island Discs, where today I'm delighted to be talking to Alan Page. Alan doesn't really need an introduction, but I'm going to try and give him one here without blowing his ego too much. Alan was one of the first test authors that I ever encountered. Uh, His book, How We Test Software at Microsoft, and his book about automation, The A Word, were two of the first books that really started to shape my testing career for me. He was also one of the first testers who made a podcast that I subscribed to. His podcast, AB Testing, which he presents with his former Microsoft colleague, Brent Jensen, has been going for about three and a half years now. And after a career spanning over 20 years at Microsoft, Alan now works as Director of Quality for Services at Unity Technologies. And in March next year, he's going to be speaking at Test Bash Brighton, telling us all about his experiences in modern testing. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. How does it feel to be on the other side of the uh, the podcast, uh, mic this time?
1: Uh, it's good. It's good. I've done a few of these over the years, but I'm just uh, a fan of this show. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited where it's going. So I'm, I'm excited to be in one of the, the first few shows. So, so thank you again. I'll stop, I'll stop gushing the other way in a moment here. But
0: <laughs> I'm curious, actually, as, as, as you are also someone who often records a podcast with one other person, how do you and Brent tend to split the recording editing efforts? That's a good question because I get a chance once again to throw Brent under the bus. <laughs> so,
1: as I do many times on the podcast brent as you know is super smart lots of great ideas and i could not do a podcast without him but brent shows up to the recording uh (laughs) brent is the type of person who i think struggles to play his radio in the car (laughs) so uh, we record in the same room together uh which i think helps a lot being able to uh, just to see each other and read each other. I know from giving like web webinars, it's hard sometimes when you can't read the room or even the person who you know very well. So with equipment's mine. I have a background in music. So we get together, we record. I use Audacity. It records to my hard drive on my computer, which I take home with me. And then I do all the editing, post-production, et cetera, and post to the internet. So Brent offers about 50% audio to each podcast and, and then his contribution stops there. And it's okay. I'm I'm actually happy with the split. It's fine. I don't mind doing it. It's kind of fun for me. So, but as far as recording and splitting, Brent is just truly the brains behind the operation.
0: I had no idea that you had a a background in music. Where does that? How far back does that go?
1: It goes back to university. I have an undergraduate degree in music composition and music education. I taught school uh, music in school for four years. Went back and got a master's in music composition. I did my master's almost entirely using music software, got really good at using computers and, and I never found my way back into teaching or made enough money composing or playing. So I found a job doing tech support at a company that made music software. I learned to program there, found out I loved it, and then got a job at this company called Microsoft
0: and (laughs) went from went from there. And you fall into the category of guests who were people I intended to ask to come on the podcast, and you applied before I got a chance to ask you. So is this something you've been considering for a while, what you would do if you were washed up on a desert island, what you would take with you? Only since I was about 10. <laughs> Back in the days before Spotify, Pandora, etc.,
1: cetera, uh, when we had physical record stores when I was a child, I used to go to Tower Records every Sunday, huge record shop, and i just wander up. I wouldn't always have time to buy records but I would wander up and down and up and down. But every month and maybe every week, they had a little free newspaper that, uh, I forget what it was called, could have just been called Tower Records, I don't know. But in the back, they had a section where readers could submit their desert island discs. And I would read those every week and and just then reflect on what would mine be. And I don't think I ever sent mine in because I could never decide. But ever since that time, I thought, I, I thought about Desert Island Disc, which is again why I'm excited to be here because that is a brilliant idea. I want to be a part of that. So I, I, I did, I, I applied right away.
0: Yeah. I'm delighted to make your wish come true, your lifetime wish. <laughs> we should get into it. What is the first song that you would take with you to a desert island if you found yourself washed up there?
1: So the first song is uh, by a Seattle artist who I just discovered about a year ago. If you go to Spotify, there's only a, maybe a dozen songs by him, but I think he's brilliant. And his name is Ben Union. And the song I picked is a song called Shake That Ass, which is just, on one hand, just a fantastic sort of poppy dance song, uh, a little bit of R&B and funk to it. But as you listen to Ben Union, he has, on one hand, at very surface level, because I listen to music often on many levels, at the surface, it's just like, this is just a nice little pop song. And then your ear catches, oh, wait. That sounds like Otis Redding or Wait, that sounds like Fly in the Family Stone. Just he weaves in these little nuggets. I don't think they're even quotes or intentional, but but you can hear his influence kind of come out in little nuggets here and there. And that makes the music really exciting for me. But and also I'm always happy to see a local band or a local musician just make some really fantastic music. Too many people That's right, I know you want to thrill. Tonight, we're gonna have some fun. Two drinks, the three for everyone. And when the music moves you so.
0: Shake that ass. If you really want to dance with me, I think I feel like fire. If you really want to feel the heat, then shake that ass. That was Ben Union with Shake That Ass. Now, Alan, on your podcast over the last few months, and in your upcoming talk at Test Bash, you talk a lot about modern testing. So what is it about testing where we are right now that's different to testing from, say, five or 10 years ago? I think there are, in some ways, subtle
1: differences, in some ways, some pretty major differences. And again, it's a continuum. It's not a dichotomy of mm-hmm. traditional versus modern. And what Brent and I have been calling modern testing is actually quite similar to what Uh, Lisa Crispin and Janet Gregory describe as an Agile tester in their Agile testing series with the difference that Brent and I believe that the modern tester uses data as a much bigger part of their job. So on one hand, the modern tester is embedded in the dev team, but instead of being the person embedded in the dev team that writes almost all of the tests for the feature, they're much more the test coach or quality coach in helping the dev team create the majority of those tests. Uh, I see the modern tester as just the quality and testing expert for their team, much like a team may have a performance or a database expert. So it's it's almost an extreme version of what Crispin and Gregory talk about with the agile tester. And like I said, in addition to the bringing that quality and testing expertise to the team and helping, as Brent and I put it, accelerate the team, accelerate the achievement of shippable quality, they also... Have that data piece where they're able to dig into the customer data they're able to make sure that the product is collecting the right amount of data to understand how the users are getting through scenarios where they're seeing failures and anticipating either through just analyzing the data or maybe even applying machine learning algorithms anticipating where errors or where source spots may appear in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. So we've seen for a while that there's been the idea of having what they call a T-shaped tester, so someone who has a, a breadth of skills and, and a specialty in testing. Do you think that with this shifting role towards uh, more of a coaching role, is there a need to, to have a, a greater depth of skills than testers have had traditionally? I
1: think it's, and I forget who came up with this model, but I think it's more of the paint drip model. If you mm. take a, a paintbrush full of paint and you paint it horizontally, there's a bunch of drips come down. And some are bigger and deeper than the others. And that's sort of the shape we're looking for. It's someone who knows a little about a lot and a lot
0: about a little. And we're gonna go on to talk more about skills, both technical and these coaching skills that you mentioned after we've heard more from your song selection. So what's the second song that you picked for us? Uh, the second
1: song requires a longer introduction. So I'm what will come out in many of these songs is I'm a big fan of the singer songwriter. And if I'm going to be on a desert island, I I'm big into storytelling. I want songs that tell me stories. There's uh, a bunch of Bob Dylan I like, some John Prine that tell really great stories, even people like Chris Christopherson. And this is a tough one. Uh, this will come out in the next description as well, but Matthew Sweet was and is a great sort of singer-songwriter. But I picked a song by a musician, John Wesley Harding, who I became a fan of when I was in graduate school, so a long time ago. and. Mainly, I started listening to him because his backing band on his first two albums was The Attractions, and I was a big Elvis Costello Mm -hmm. fan. I liked his music, and then I found he had a solo acoustic set where it was a lot more of just him, and he has some great self-deprecating humor, and he writes some funny songs, but he's also just a really great writer and storyteller. He's an author of several books, but the song I picked is a song that again, reflects on my Seattle heritage, it's called, there's a Starbucks where the Starbucks used to be. And the whole song is about sort of the, the impermanence of change, but with a little jab of humor, where in a land where we, where I live, where there are so many Starbucks that although many things change, there may be a Starbucks right where the Starbucks used to be. And I think it's a a fun set. And then one last give you an idea of how much of a fanboy I am of John Wesley Harding, I had him play a 75-minute set at my 40th birthday party, uh, which oh. was a lot of fun as well. So we yeah. are we're, we're Twitter friends, and, and uh, we stay in touch quite a bit, and um, I'm happy to share this song with your listeners and happy to bring it to my desert island with me. There's a shed called Deer Creek Of which my one critique Is there's no creek now, and it's all deer-free There's a Walgreens where there were no walls, just greenery There's a theme park in a palace in Tennessee
0: That tree there is a pylon, but some things you can rely on There's a Starbucks where the Starbucks used to be there's a Starbucks where the Starbucks used to be. There's a Starbucks where the Starbucks used to be.
1: There's a hard luck story everywhere you look for all the glory. There's a Starbucks where the Starbucks used to be.
0: So that was John Wesley Harding with There's a Starbucks Where the Starbucks Used to Be. And we were talking before that about the skills that a modern tester needs and whether those skills now include coaching and more technical skills. A surprising number of testers that I speak to class themselves as not being technical, if you put the word technical in quotes. Is there any hope for them in the future of the world of testing? There is much hope. I think, and this is a huge piece of mine, I
1: think there's a weird definition problem where air quote technical mm-hmm. means air quote coding. Yeah. And that's where it breaks down. So I don't necessarily need testers that can write code, especially not automation, but I need testers that can figure out how to use Docker to make their testing easier. Maybe just a little bit of shell scripting to help put together a test scenario. Maybe they can set up a performance framework using uh, you know, Jmeter being able to use tools to solve their problems, that level of technicality they need. If you look at the definition of the word technical, it just means able to use the tools of the craft. Mm. And yes, the brain is a tool. And I think a very good exploratory tester has value, but they have immense more value if they can use tools and discover tools and discover software that helps them do their job better. So to me, that's technical. I think if you can only, if you don't want to use any tools, then maybe you may have some uh, limit to your career. But none of the good testers I know feel that way. They want to find things they can use to help them be more efficient, help them be more effective. And that's what technical is. I think the big problem comes when you start to equate technical with writing a whole bunch of code, and those don't have to be the same
0: thing. Mm, yeah, we had a really interesting discussion about this at Test Bash Manchester, actually. To me, describing someone as a technical tester is like describing someone as a logical tester. It isn't actually giving you any any actionable, useful information about what that person can or can't do. As you say, it's all about breaking it down into, well, what can you do? Like so I had heard someone say, oh, I'm not technical, but I know how to put a decent SQL query together. Well, that, that's, that's an element of technical skill. And that is something you can apply to your job to make you more efficient in what you do. Sure. I've used the example of
1: technical cooking before. We don't use that, but I still use measuring cups and and make sure the pan is hot enough before I put the vegetables in it.
0: And on the flip side, you were talking about testers needing to develop coaching skills. That can be a hard thing for people to, to pick up if they've not done it before. What's the best way for someone to learn to become a coach? I don't know if there's a best way. I think there's a couple things you can do. Uh,
1: one is probably the best way. I'll, I'll lie. Maybe there is the best way, and that's just to practice. Try little things. Uh, don't jump in and start lecturing someone how to do something. Little baby steps always help. You might go to a developer and say, "Hey, I was looking at your unit test. It would be great if you had one that did this. Or these are great integration tests. How about we write one that connects this component with this component too? Can you help? Can I, we pair on that?" Little things like that, and if something doesn't work, you can try something different. I'm a big fan of the you know try small things, fail fast, and those things will really help. On the more meta level, I recommend Jerry Weinberg's Becoming a Technical Leader a lot because it covers a lot of those coaching skills that require humility and trust and respect to get across. And that can give you some tools you need to help come up with those those small ideas that you can try and see what
0: works. Yeah, and find a safe environment that you can do it in. Not not something where you're going to be criticized if you're experimenting and it doesn't work out. Pair with someone who you can trust and someone who you think can help you to push your own career forward. I think that's a, a really good idea. That takes us on to song number three, which is a song that definitely needs some explanation for me. Okay. One thing I think
1: I need on the island, just to get me going if I need to get some motivation or some exercise, is some good power pop. Uh, Sometimes called punk pop, but as someone who was into real punk rock earlier in my years, I'm gonna go with power pop. It's just fun music. And this is by a band that I've seen live a few times, the band called Bowling for Soup. And the song is called The Girl All the Bad Guys Want. And it's just a fun little pop song cleverly written. It has a nice little reference to the Ramones, who I've also seen uh, a few times live many, many years ago. A line in the bridge says, she broke my heart. I want to be sedated. All I wanted was to see her naked. It just makes me a teenager again. So it's just uh, a lot of fun. And then uh, one other line from the song is, her CD changers full of singers that are mad at their dad, which I think is just a, a clever, wonderful, poignant line. So it's just a fun song to listen to. It's got a great beat, and you can dance to it. And when she walks, all the windows and the angels sing. But she doesn't notice me. Because she's watching wrestling, creaming over tough guys. Listening to rap metal, turntables in her eyes. It's like a bad mood.
0: That like was Bowling for Soup, Girl, All the Bad Guys Want. And what we're talking about where testing is these days, we can't help but talk about automation, seeing as it's kind of your bread and butter. You've been living and breathing it for a long time now. Are we getting better at it as an industry, or are we still nowhere? I think we're getting, as an industry, we're getting better.
1: I worry that we're getting better in the wrong place. And what I mean by that is we are writing much more automation there are developers writing much more automation and testers writing much more automation. Uh, my worry is, and this, is, this came up in the A word, which you mentioned earlier, thank you, is that when you look at Mike Cohn's testing pyramid, where you have the big base of unit tests and the medium base of integration tests, we'll call them, and then the top of the pyramid, which are the end-to-end tests or UI tests. Uh, my fear is that we're putting too much focus into that top little bit of the pyramid. And in Mike Cohn's writing, if I recall correctly, and I've read it many times, so I, I think I think I'm right, he says that you should write as few of these tests as possible. And in my experience in writing automation, a good reason for that is it's so easy due to test issues, environment issues, browser issues, unknown issues. For those tests to be flaky and require a lot of investigation and hand-holding to keep them running. I'm not against writing tests there. I think you'd be very careful there. But again, my fear is that as we're writing an exponential larger number of tests and, and we have more people writing tests, that we're focusing too hard on the top of that pyramid and not in writing a whole bunch of tests at a lower level. And then I'm not sure how to draw these into the pyramid, but there's another kind of testing that I want to do with automation, which is load tests or, or class, I'll, I'll call it a class of tests. You have your load test, your stress test, your performance tests. your interesting, taking the big list of naughty strings and cranking it through inputs, doing fuzz testing for security testing. Uh, those things maybe live outside the pyramid, but they need to be done. And to me, they're, they're very, very, very important. Uh, I like the Google model where they just label tests as small, medium, or large. And often the UI tests are large tests because they require a lot of infrastructure and setup. But those large tests also can include that class of performance security uh, tests that I just mentioned.
0: My hope is that as the world begins to move more and more towards a microservices architecture, that's going to generally force tests to be written and run at a lower and lower level. So you, there's less impetus to write those Huge blow to UI tests. That's the way I hope things are going. It certainly is the way that I'm working now. But I, I appreciate I, my views only come from working within the the company I'm at right now.
1: The other good news I see is when I rant about this, I'm getting more and more head nods of "Yeah, I get it." Yeah, I get it. Or I see people talk about some of the same things. So I do see things going in the right direction. So there is there is change afoot. So that's good. Yeah. Uh, I just have this worry in my heart. My little little portion of my heart dedicated to test automation that worries that many companies and many testers are too focused on writing tests for that little teeny bit at the top of the pyramid.
0: And we've got one more section where we'll talk more about how the role of a tester is changing. After we hear from you, Alan, about song number four. Song number
1: four is from another one of my favorite uh, singer-songwriters, Sean Mullins, who had, of course, the big hit with Lullaby several years ago. But I've been a fan of him for a long time. I think he writes these just fantastic stories in his songs, and there's a song off of the same album as Lullaby called Twin Rocks, Oregon. It's just a just a story about a musician meeting a guy on the road and this this wise old sage and what he learns from him. And there's a verse that hits me for a lot of good reasons. And uh, I'll see if I can get the whole thing here. It says, I said I don't reckon I'll be making it big. You know, it's hard to get rich off a tour of coffeehouse gigs. And he said, yeah, but ain't it a blessing to do what you want to do. And the musician in me goes, yeah, if you're playing music and someone tells you it's like, maybe you're not making a lot of money, but you're, you love what you're doing. It's fantastic. But you know, you and I work in this and the listeners, we're, we're knowledge workers, we're testers, we're software engineers, and we're in a world where we can do a job we love. Mm -hmm. We're not working in a coal mine or a dark factory or, or someplace we hate going to work. I, you know, 90% of the people I know in this industry love going to work every day. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. And this song hits at it home. It's like, yeah, as bad as maybe you have a bad week. The week was rough, but I'll ask you,
0: Neil, ain't it a blessing to do what you want to do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do anything else. I said, I don't reckon I'll be making it big hard to get rich off a tour of coffeehouse gigs. He said, yeah, but ain't it a blessing to do what you want to do. I told him, yeah, I pulled off here to watch the sun disappear into the ocean. It's been years since I smelled the salty sea. And he turned his bottle up and down he saw me lost and he saw me found he said i don't know what i've been looking for maybe me that was twin rocks oregon by sean mullins and with all this change going on around us we're all still really busy we've got our day-to-day jobs to do how can testers make themselves more aware of all this change that's going on around them with only limited hours in the day
1: I love this question because this is the base of what learning or knowledge acquisition is about. And you get the long answer for this. I'm a big believer in what Philip Armour describes as the five levels of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And I've blogged about these. You may have heard about these. But for the sake of the listeners who may not have heard me rant about these, at the first level of ignorance, you know what you know. I know how to speak English pretty well. And you're, you're going to fix what I don't in the edits. Then I know what I don't know. I know I don't know Chinese, but I do have ways to learn. I can take classes. I can immerse myself in the culture. I can do a bunch of things. And then there's, I don't know what I don't know, which I can't give you an example of by definition. <laughs> but then more importantly at the top is you need a suitable means to discover what you don't know you don't know. And if you never look out past your day job, you cannot discover those new things. And the way you acquire knowledge is I discover something I don't know I don't know, which immediately becomes something I know I don't know, and then I can choose to learn about it and push it down to that first level of knowledge acquisition, which is I know it. So with that preface in mind, you need to, as anyone in knowledge work, if you, you cannot be successful if you're not constantly learning. Me, I read a lot of books, and I spend time on Twitter, and I read a lot of blogs, and I have a full-time job. So it doesn't take that much time to keep your eyes open. Or you can go to conferences like Test Bash, which is one of my favorites, and just find a way to get new ideas so you can incorporate them or at least discover that you don't know you don't know them. So being more specific, I would say if you're on Twitter, follow a bunch of testers and see what they have to say. Ministry of Test has a great collated list of blogs and of podcasts, uh, which is a great way to learn and see what other people are saying about testing. And in fact, the Ministry of Testing blog feed is something I read every morning while I'm having coffee. Mm. I flip through it, I dive into some articles, I I skip over others. Some days I have to kind of glance at all of them because I have a really busy day. But in this profession and in any knowledge work, if you're not making an effort to learn something or to expose yourself to new ideas, just about every day, you are going to have a hard time getting better at it.
0: Yep, I'll put a load of links in our show notes for that around uh, <laughs> the, the Philip Armour five orders of ignorance links to the ministry of testing blog feed, all of that you can find down below, depending on where you're listening to this. The other thing that I would add to that is, and this is actually something that I spoke about at test bash Manchester in the lightning talks is I find a lot of testers who Will say no to things because they see it's. They either say, "Oh, it's not part of my job," or they'll say it because they can't do it. It's a skill they don't know how to to do right now. I would encourage testers to try and say yes to those things more. To maybe verbally acknowledge that this isn't a thing that they have done before, and to to be comfortable with saying, "I'm exploring the unknown here," because having those opportunities, so those sort of serendipitous chances to go and say, "Okay, I don't know about this yet, but I could know more about this," being encouraged by your employer to be able to go and do that is. It's really useful. Let me tell you a story about that. I have many of these, but
1: one recently is at Microsoft, I worked on this, I'll call it, I will call it a science project because I knew it was never going to ship. We had a product where we were making Android apps run on Windows Phone. And I worked on this product. It was as a resume builder, I wanted a chance to use uh, Linux a lot more and to learn Java. Uh, we got to a point where we, one of the tasks on the board was to make sure that we had static analysis tools in place and automatic bug reporting for those errors found for our Java code. And I spoke right up and said, hey, I have some experience with these tools. I'll go ahead and do that. And I said, great task is yours. I had no experience with those tools, Mm -hmm. but I had confidence that I could learn how to make them work. And I did, I I wrote all the, the glue and tools and hooked them all up and everything worked great. But I think not being afraid to dive in like that, I'm not encouraging anyone to lie to their employer, but it was something I wanted to learn. I wanted to make sure that task was going to come to me, so I told a little white lie. But part of that, just not being afraid, is definitely part of the process
0: of learning new stuff. And to bring it back around to where we started this section, if you do find yourself in a position where you need to do something that you haven't done before and you're not sure how to go about doing it, there are all these resources out there, be it blogs, be it Twitter various Slack channels that are out there for, you know, the, the testing community is one of the most incredibly receptive communities I've ever seen to people who will actually just help people Absolutely. off their own back. Absolutely.
1: I think the strong test community, going back to Philip Armour, that is a means to discover what you don't know you don't know. And of course, I'm probably preaching to the choir, listening to the podcast, you're probably already in those communities, but tell your friends and co-workers too.
0: And so there's only one thing left that we don't know yet, and that's your fifth and final song choice.
1: Another one of my favorite bands is a band out of Toronto called Bare Naked Ladies. So many great songs from them. They write very good pop songs. They're very funny if you've seen them live. They're just a blast. Uh, One of their earlier songs kind of hit me inside too. It's a song called Brian Wilson. It's about Brian Wilson, but it's really about listening to Brian Wilson. I like songs that can hit you on two levels. Again, if I'm stuck on a desert island, I need to engage my brain. So you could look at the song Brian Wilson as a little story about Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. But really it's about Stephen Page, no relation, the singer of the song, him lying in bed, thinking about Brian Wilson. So you can listen to it on two different levels. And then on a third level for me, as someone who used to go to record shops all the time, just the very opening lines, I, I knew I was going to love this song the first time I heard it. It starts off with, drove downtown in the rain, 9.30 on a Tuesday night, just to check out the late night record shop. And that's me going down to a record shop called Cellophane Square in the University District in Seattle in high school. I was obsessed with music. So that that line hits, and I love the story of Brian Wilson. I'm not going to go into the whole diatribe biography here. But it's just a song I know I can listen to a thousand times and not get sick of. So it's absolutely coming with me to the desert island. So I'm a lion here Just standing-
0: That was The Bare Naked Ladies with Brian Wilson, Alan Page's final song selection for The Desert Island. And the one other thing that we allow you to do, and I don't know if Tower Records did the same, but they allow you to take a book with you to the island as well. Have you given some thought to which book would accompany you? I did. Actually, there was a Tower book next door to Tower Records, but I didn't go there. I spent
1: my money on albums. But the book I'd bring is a book by Umberto Eco, probably probably better known for The Name of the Rose, but his book, Focal Pendulum, I think is wonderful. And again, a book I've read several times and I know it's a book I could read many times over and enjoy. It is, I don't wanna inflate it and call it the intellectual version of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of parallels between the books. They both talk about the Illuminati and conspiracy, but the difference with Umberto Eco's book is, it's a conspiracy book that deconstructs conspiracies and kind of makes fun of conspiracies while being a book about conspiracies.
0: It acknowledges how incredulous the whole thing is. Yes, and then on
1: top of that, so that's, there's the whole story in there about, at the very high level, the middle level, if you just look at the words, it's a nice conspiracy story with lots of great plot twists. At another level down, you realize he's actually poking fun a little bit on a variety of things, including conspiracy theories. And the other reason I would bring this book is because it's just filled with facts, just random facts that may or may not be adding to the story, but they're interesting. And it's one of the things that makes the book a little different every time I read it. And if, again, if I'm stuck on the island and I have nothing to read but one book, it's a book I know I can read again and again and keep my brain
0: engaged. It's one that I know by name and reputation. I've not read it myself, but just reading up on it on Wikipedia before we came on air, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go and read that. That that sounds exactly like my jam. <laughs> That's been brilliant, Alan. It's been as rich and eclectic a selection of songs and books as we could hope to find. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. If people would like to get hold of you, where would they go about doing that?
1: Many ways. They can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Alan Page, A-L-A-N-P-A-G-E. I have my blog at angryweasel.com, which I'm sure you'll link to. Then, of course, the podcast with Brent Jensen at angryweasel.com slash A-B testing. I'll also be out and about on the world. As you mentioned, I will be at Test Bash Brighton in March. For U.S. folks, I will be at Star East in May. And next week, I will be at the Heisenberg Conference in Moscow, Russia.
0: Fantastic. That's uh, quite a bit of traveling to do before Christmas. <laughs> and if you'd like to get a hold of the show, you can do so on Twitter at Testers Island. You can find all of our previous episodes and our Spotify playlist and a link to apply to be a guest at www.testersislanddiscs.com. We'll be back with one more episode before Christmas. I'll be doing a standalone Christmas special, taking you through my desert island Christmas songs and a wrap up of 2017 in testing. And I look forward to speaking to you all then. Thanks again, Alan, for coming on the podcast. Thanks again for having me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye. Tester's Island Discs is brought to you in association with the Ministry of Testing. Written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Tony Lovitch. Follow us on Twitter at Tester's Island.